boy 50. Them say I carry that, that automatic Yahoo boy. Why are us the bar? We go make your mama lose joy. Leave one for him leg, your future we go destroy. Police is your friend, all my other one a decoy. Sass the beat, sass the still, but Sega get your freaking back. Sega this, Sega that, but Sega know they ever slack. Sega tweet, Sega help, Sega be like light for dark. Sass the fear, sass the jail, all because of Sega fact. Sass be like devil, them they still kill and destroy. Person go watch ball, all my now they don't end the boy. Click pal, trigger happy, see the red on the soil. Vexed and enraged, on my inside they boil. Only cop I can vouch for is CP Wakili. The rest will show you pepper, they are layers of chili. You they young, you get car, you they feel yourself a bee. Them go tax you, them go rob you, them go frame you up, you see. Officer of the law, but on duty you they blow grass. Young boys know they save, now your duty to they harass. Police turning bankers, them get POS, pure trust. RIP caller, they it is time to answer. What is police misconduct? Find out next on Practical Law. Stay tuned. Welcome to Practical Law. I'm your host, family law and divorce attorney Henry Gornbine. I'm also pleased to say that Practical Law is being co-sponsored by the Oakland County Bar Association. We have been going through a lot of turmoil with unarmed children and adults being shot by police officers. We've had a lot of instances of alleged police brutality and police misconduct. Today on Practical Law, I'm pleased to welcome as my guest, Attorney David Robinson, as we discuss issues involving police misconduct. David, welcome to Practical Law. Thank you, Henry, welcome. First of all, why don't you tell our viewers a little bit about your background and who you are? Uh, I. Uh I'm an attorney. I've been practicing for about 29 years now. I was a former police officer with the city of Detroit. Uh, as a police officer, I uh, uh, did, you know, law enforcement work uh, and street work. I decided to go to law school. And I graduated from law school, and then I began representing the police department. I worked as a legal advisor to the chief of police. Part of my assignment was to uh, uh, defend officers in civil lawsuits teach recruits the law in the academy and uh, things like that. I, after about three years uh, doing that, I uh, stopped uh, and opened a practice uh, and uh, sort of devoted myself to police misconduct uh, from the plaintiff's perspective. When you're talking about police misconduct, what are you referring to? Give us some broad generalizations, I guess. Uh, a broad definition of police misconduct would be uh, uh, where a standard of conduct, uh, either set by law, uh, department policy, the Constitution, is uh, uh, breached and uh, by a law enforcement officer. Officers are um, vested with authority uh, through the state or whichever uh, uh, body of government uh, for whom they work, and um, there are limitations put on that authority. Uh, the Constitution, of course, puts uh, on the Fourth Amendment uh, the limitation of uh, reasonable conduct as it relates to use of force and as it relates to, you know, searches and intrusions into one's privacy. And so when one crosses the point of uh, reasonable, uh, then uh, the behavior uh, becomes uh, in the category of misconduct. Uh, excessive force would be an example. 
of the uh, conduct that uh, goes beyond that uh, which is reasonable and required under the Constitution. David, let's say someone comes to you. What are you looking for in deciding whether or not to take a prospective client and take on a case? Well, I look to a number of things. Uh, obviously, the first thing is whether or not I can prove the case. Right. Um, you have to have some sort of uh, uh, objective proof uh, that what you are uh, pretending uh, actually did occur. Uh, when you have a situation where you've got an officer's word over the individual's word, even if the individual is telling the truth, it's sometimes difficult to overcome uh, objectively uh, what the officer has, you know, uh, said occurred and put uh, in documentary form by virtue of a report. Now we've got uh, video cameras and uh, uh, mics and so forth, and so that assists, you know, in, uh, in evaluating case, but, uh, you know, it's a, a multitude of factors that go into it. Obviously the value of a case uh, is important, and uh, um, your client, you know. Uh, so you're weighing how credible your client is, how he or she is going to look, uh, I guess before a jury, for lack of a better word, versus uh, the police officer, and you're taking on, to some degree, it's David and Goliath, and you're representing the Davids versus the Goliaths, so maybe that's shifting now because there's a lot more negativity towards police out there. And, um, you know, with, again, the advent of the cameras and uh, being able to document behavior with cell phones and everybody has one. Everybody's walking around. Certainly, exactly. you know, that has heightened the, the uh, scrutiny of uh, police behavior and has opened, uh, you know, community eyes, as it were, to uh, what it is that actually takes place a lot of times between that interaction uh, of police and citizen. So. What are some key issues that you're looking at when you are cross-examining a police officer? What are you looking at for? I'm, I'm looking to create, an, uh, in a sort, uh, a dialogue with the officer. Uh, I need to test his uh, training. I need to test his uh, um, uh, ability to, uh, to articulate, which the law requires, uh, why it is that he or she did a particular thing or uh, exercised a particular type of conduct and to see whether or not it is consistent with not just the law but his own uh, rules and regulations. A lot of times police officers um, don't really, you know, remind themselves of what their responsibilities are in writing and so it's easy uh, in some regards to catch an officer off, off guard. You can ask an officer, please give me uh, a definition of probable cause. And he might respond, it's a reasonable suspicion. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, interesting, you know, that, uh, that's what you're looking for. What are we looking at when we're talking about use of excessive force? Um, excessive force is, again, um, something that goes beyond what uh, is a parameter that is defined by both by the law and by the officer's policy. Um, <clears throat> an officer has the right to use the force requisite in order for him to carry out his or her particular function. So um, whatever the force is that is in excess of 
the need to carry out that function then becomes excessive. So it's a case-by-case -case analysis and um, really you have to look to the, the facts of, uh, of what it is the officer is attempting uh, to do, you know, and carry out that function uh, and determine uh, whether or not uh, that force used by virtue of the evidence of a certain injury um, is excessive. An example would be where handcuffs are put on a person and uh, if they're too tight, they're going to cause a terrible mark. Uh, if handcuffs are used in the ordinary, normal and reasonable fashion they're supposed to be, there shouldn't be an injury that results from it. So that's just one example. Uh, if you arrest someone, you know, who is uh, uh, committing uh, some sort of misdemeanor and uh, they wind up getting a black eye, uh, then that injury uh, suggests uh, the possibility of some force that was used uh, inconsistent with what was required for the rest of some misdemeanor. When you're in trial, how do you get a police officer to tell your story through cross-examination? Um, well, um, in my experience, having been a police officer, I personally... Um, always put myself in the shoes of that officer. I put myself in the scene and I'm going to do exactly what it is um, that is by the book uh, during my cross-examination of him and let him tell me what he did uh, that is inconsistent <laughs> with what should have been done. Um, I can tell you about a case um, where um, an officer um, through his own testimony um, and his own uh, lack of appreciation for what was required by his own department, sort of traipsed off into his own story of the events. And uh, the longer he talked and spoke, the more it is that he twisted himself uh, and, s and ensnared himself uh, in a uh, an really unreasonable position um, that sort of created his own, you know, um, difficulties uh, under the circumstances. So and I can tell you about that case. Kind of was hoisted on his own petard, for lack of a better word, and became his own worst enemy. He did. He did. And, and it, it's interesting because as he's digging his hole, uh, the jury, again, is going to look to see uh, what is reasonable, because that's how the instruction is going to come. Reasonable conduct and the more the officer talked the more unreasonable uh, were his actions uh, and more uh, departed they were from what was required both at the law and uh, in his own policy. I'm curious is there any immunity that police officers have with regard to civil liability? They do, they do. I mean uh, obviously immunity is, uh, is something that uh, the government uh, realizes uh, uh, in the course of uh, public servants uh, going about their responsibilities, they're bound to make certain mistakes. Um, some mistakes are forgivable, other mistakes are not forgivable. Immunity is about, I guess, forgivable mistakes. Um, and so, yeah, a police officer has a certain type of immunity, but if the conduct rises to a another level that goes beyond uh, that, again, that is depreciated by the role that they play, uh, then they lose their immunity or can lose their immunity. So, 
Now, David, since you were a police officer a number of years ago, do you feel more empathy because, let's face it, police are often put into very uncomfortable situations where they're dealing with people that are worse, people who can be dangerous. I mean, I'm a specialist in family law, and I've heard over the years that among the most volatile situations are when you are called where there's a domestic dispute going on, so. Um, obviously, Henry, the uh, job has uh, the greatest potential for danger. Um, that cannot be the excuse for proper behavior, uh, notwithstanding uh, the, the nature of the call. Um, if I can briefly tell you a, a story as a young Please police do. officer, um, one of the first runs that I had was uh, a family trouble run. And um, in the academy, um, you're going to get um, the so-called by-the-book um, technique as to how to deal with this. But that doesn't mean that a police officer is not um, uh, able to exercise his or her own discretion if he or she can safely find a way to diffuse the situation or accomplish the goal that uh, you have to do. And so when I was called to the house, I'm 21 years old, brand new police officer. And this is family trouble run. And so I'm thinking, you know, okay, let's go back to the books here. What do I do? I've got a 65-year-old lady and a 65-year-old man, and they're arguing with each other. And the book says, well, you take the, you know, one spouse in one room, you take another spouse in the other room, and, you know, you separate them, but you don't lose sight of each other. And then you calm them down. Well, um, that only works to a certain point. So I thought a better way to deal with this, you know, was the fact that I should sort of embarrass them to make them ashamed of what it is that they're doing. I'm 21 years old. And I told them, listen, you've been married longer than I've been alive. You should be getting along trying to tell me, you know, how to uh, treat my wife when I want to get married. It worked. It embarrassed them. Uh, and by the end of it, you know, I had them hugging each other and telling uh, each other they were in love again. Did it work? For that moment, yes, it did. And so I accomplished the goal. So again, I was left to my own devices. These things, right. again, are devices and, and tools and utilities that a police officer, if he or she thinks, you know, long and hard enough, um, they can use. Let me ask you about some particular cases. First of all, what is the Grable shooting case? Um, I alluded to that earlier, uh, uh, Henry, when I talked about cross-examining the police okay. officer. Grable was a 20-year-old uh, man that uh, a police officer, uh, Eugene Brown is his name, had uh, alleged um, had, was carrying a gun and that uh, he at some point saw a Grable cross in front of his police car uh, with this gun. Um, immediately, as a police officer, man with a gun is a dangerous sort of situation. And so uh, Brown, as most police officers want to do, is to rely on the danger of the job and the danger is somehow their excuse that justifies everything that they do. Well, um, again, inconsistent with what is required at law and inconsistent with departmental policy, uh, Brown would do everything that uh, would, in cross-examination, dig his own hole, okay? So uh, he gets out of the car, it's dark. You know, he goes into a dark alley, he's following purportedly this young man with uh, 
with a, uh, a gun. Well, that in of itself suggests that, okay, well, what should I do as a police officer procedurally? I should get on the radio right. well before and let somebody know that there's a man with a gun. Well, Brown, you know, he was a hot dog. <laughs> so he didn't want to do this. Okay, again, violation of the rules and regulations. And uh, how significant is this uh, to the life of this person that he is chasing? Again, the goal is not to kill everybody and shoot everybody. The goal is to, you know, keep an eye on them, catch them, so that everybody goes home safely. So the more that uh, we took uh, in cross-examination, Mr. Brown, down the path of danger, the more unreasonable was his conduct, in other words. And so it got to the point where he had even gotten shot at purportedly, according to Brown's testimony, by this guy. But he still didn't call for help. What sense does that make? Um, he never ever called for help, you know, and uh, it wound up that uh, uh, the jury did not buy uh, uh, Brown's story. Um, what happened to Grable? Was he shot and Grable killed? Grable was shot and killed. He was shot eight times, uh, literally, by Brown. Did he have a gun? Um, there was never any proof that he had a gun. There was a gun there, but uh, uh, the jury, as well as I, believe that the gun was planted. Uh, no fingerprints on the gun, no DNA test that proved that Grable had a gun. It's called a drop gun, for lack of yeah, a better word. Right, exactly. And the jury awarded us $4 million for that case. Was that in Detroit? Yes, it was. What about the Detroit uh, Eddie Joe Lloyd case? Eddie Joe Lloyd uh, was a, uh, <coughs> a man that was in, uh, at the time, a um, uh, uh, mental facility, uh, Herman Kiefer. And uh, he had read about a young girl who had been raped and murdered. This was back uh, in the period where <coughs> there had been a lot of schoolgirl rapes. And uh, the police were on high alert, you know, because all of these things that occurred. Well, Eddie Joe Lloyd was in a mental facility and contacted the police to let them know that he uh, had information about uh, her rapist and her murderer. Now, the police came and visited him, um, and during um, a number of uh, interrogations, um, Eddie Joe Lloyd eventually um, confessed to uh, the murder and the rape. He spent 18 years in uh, prison and uh, through DNA evidence and through the work of the Innocence Project was found never to have been in involved <coughs> in the death and the rape of the young girl. Um, what we were able to uh, determine as in many uh, confession cases um, detectives tend to feed uh, uh, vulnerable individuals with facts uh, that only uh, the detective could have known um, and uh, individuals uh, for some reason <coughs> and it's a psychological thing and it's uh, uh, expert um, evidence that supports the fact that many people do under duress uh, do confess to crimes that they didn't commit. In Eddie Joe Lloyd's case um, he certainly was under a form of duress. Uh, he was compromised mentally, and uh, and so uh, again we were able to prove that um, the uh, 
detective took well advantage of his vulnerable circumstance and was there a jury verdict in that case? They settled uh, for about three million dollars, I think. What about the jailhouse litigation cases? What is that about? Well, um, there was a pattern in practice of the Detroit Police Department uh, to deny uh, medical treatment to uh, pre-trial detainees in the local lockups. They had about 15 of those cases and all of them had a similar theme to them. Um, where uh, once you're behind bars, if you ask for help, you're not going to get it. And the same sort of uh, symptomology that you may be suffering, uh, you know, on the sidewalk in front of the precinct, um, a police officer will come out, call 911 for you, and get you to the hospital. But that same symptomology that you're complaining about, once you're behind bars, you're not going to get help. And that's what we were finding uh, uh, systemically uh, through the uh, Detroit Police Department. And uh, the litigation ultimately resulted in <coughs> the federal government coming in, Justice Department doing its own investigation into uh, uh, pattern and practice, and uh, uh, eventually wound up closing up the eighth and ninth floors of the uh, um, police headquarters. How could the police have presented, prevented the death of Brown? It's another situation. Well, um, in uh, Michael Brown's case, um, police officers, again, have to think outside the box if they want to do the decent and the humane thing. Time, distance, and civility, I think, are tools of safety um, as much as a bulletproof vest is. But police officers, again, have to realize the uh, value of uh, those tools um, and treat them just as if they, you know, are some uh, other implement of uh, police safety, <coughs> um, civility. In the case of, uh, of Michael Brown, um, this happened where? Uh, Michael Brown happened in um, uh, it was, I'm sorry, Cleveland. I believe with Michael Brown and is he uh, the one who had the BB gun or something or a replica? Well, no, that was uh, the young man uh, Tamar Rice. Okay, okay, and that may have been Cleveland. Tamar Rice. I thought it was Cleveland. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, Michael Brown was in uh, Missouri, uh, I believe. At Ferguson. At Ferguson. And I'm, I'm sorry. I, I know their names. Yeah, but we okay. got the Ferguson. We've got uh, Ferguson. We've got. Uh, Tamar Rice and uh, the other gentleman. Um, but back to Michael Brown, so what happened exactly? Um, again, um, the approach of Officer Darren Wilson in Missouri, I think, uh, set the tone for everything else that came after that. According to the young man that was with Michael Brown, um, he said that uh, Darren Wilson um, shouted expletives at them to get out of the street. Well, <coughs> again, Michael Brown, uh, as any citizen, has as much right to deserve to be treated with dignity as a police officer himself uh, uh, wants. Um, and so when Darren Wilson approaches the situation uh, through, you know, setting the wrong tone and uh, showing disrespect, um, that 
as the stage, stage is set and everything else that comes after it um, creates that Michael Brown atmosphere, so to speak. <coughs> um, the different approach, of course, um, does just the opposite. Uh, so the civil approach has the tendency to uh, uh, to get uh, the deference that uh, Darren Wilson ultimately wanted in order to accomplish the job that he set out to do. I mean, again, you can uh, um, control is in the hands of the police officer often. What about the Garner case? The Garner case, uh, it's, that's uh, Long Island, okay, with Officer Pantaleo. Um, Again, time, distance, and civility. What do we have? We've got uh, Mr. Gardner um, uh, operating what uh, is <coughs> a misdemeanor sort of way to make money. All right. So he is selling Lucy's um, in front of a, a store. So the police officers are caught. Um, okay, they've got a job to do, right? Um, but how do they exercise their job? Do they do so the smart way or do they do so the stupid way? Henry, the objective for everybody, uh, both the suspect and the police officer, is that we go home safely at, at night, even the Absolutely. bad guy, okay? And so <coughs> a better approach, <coughs> as far as I'm concerned, would be uh, in, in Mr. Gardner's circumstance would have been um, wait him out. Uh, if Mr. Garner is selling Lucy's to people that are entering the store, if the police are sitting there in a car, uh, he's not going to be able to carry out his function. He's going to leave. You're going to tell him to leave. And I'm going to stay here as long as it takes, Mr. Garner, because you can't make money. And that's, what you're, that's, your, that's his goal, okay? He's going to go home or have to go somewhere else. And so if the objective is to stop what it is that he's doing that is unlawful, um, then that uh, uh, conduct, uh, which again, time uh, is on the police officer's side. Um, you take Mr. Garner's financial incentive out of what it is that he's doing, he's got to leave. He couldn't stay there. So to have it result in him being put in a prohibited chokehold uh, to the point of his being dead ultimately, well, he didn't go home safely. And it, uh, it, it, it uh, did not serve um, the purpose of uh, civility. Now we have, we have one minute. So I was gonna go into Ferguson, but why don't you give us some final thoughts before we end the show? Um, again, um, in the context of what it is that a police officer um, has the authority to do, uh, it's granted by the state. It has limits and restrictions on it. Um, behavior um, has to be contained uh, by some rules and some regulations. Um, when a police officer acts outside of that authority and sort of construes power for something that he really can't have because the state or no other uh, authorizing agency gives a, an individual power, um, 
then problems can occur. <clears throat> David Robinson, you are the man who polices the police, for lack of a better word. We're out of time. I want to thank you so much for being my guest on Practical Law. I want to thank you for watching Practical Law.